Father, as your world will have no end, and as you've invited us into this new world, your new creation, with a new people, we ask that as our ears are open now to your word, that you would shape us into being your people who find ourselves in you. We literally live and move and have our being in you and in this new world that you're bringing about. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been, as we're a a new Anglican church, and I guess we're a mix. There's some uh, veteran Anglicans always in the room, and then there's people like me who are less than veteran Anglicans. John, are you leaving us again with the kids? We always wish we could go with you. All right. Thanks, John. Uh, All the youth, follow John. We're, uh, we're just trying to, to say a word now and then about, you know, what we do and why we do it, because not everybody knows. So let's uh, say a word this morning about the creed. Uh, why is it every week when I'm done with the message, we say the creed? Well, on one hand, the creed is kind of a, a brief a rehearsing of the facts of the story. Like, I missed the Super Bowl. I mean, how lame is that? I was on an airplane flying back to Boise during the Super Bowl. Is that just last Sunday? Time flies. So I I missed the Super Bowl. But if I missed the Super Bowl, somebody might have said to me, oh, well, you know, first the Colts scored, and then, you know, this happened, and then that happened, and man, it looked like the Colts were going to go down and have a Peyton Manning kind of moment, they were going to tie the game up, but somebody intercepted a pass, and he ran it back, whatever it was, 67 yards or whatever, and scored, and that sort of put the game away. We see I'm sort of being given the facts that sort of tell the story of the game. And that's what the creed does for us. The creed is not meant to be the end-all and the be-all. It's meant to say this is the fundamental facts of the story that we're all living in as Christians. Now, the difference is, is that when I got off the plane in Boise and someone said to me, well, Todd, that's what happened, here's one huge difference between the mere reciting of facts and what the creed does, is the creed invites our participation in that story. And a talent scout could look at me for just one second and go, you are not NFL material, right? I am not invited to participate in the Super Bowl with just the rehearsing of the facts. But when we rehearse the creed, we are not merely rehearsing sort of bullet points of theological facts that sort of become links in a chain that tell this big story of God, but we're invited to participate in it. And one of the chief ways that, we're antici- we're antici- that God anticipated we would participate in it, one of the chief ways that we're invited to do so is the story that our readings tell us this morning about people and God radiating himself through people. So in the story of Moses, you see him go through this amazing transformation as he comes down the mountain with the tablets. He radiates the, the person of God. Paul talks about us radiating the person of God through gifts and love. And then, of course, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see this same thing happening with Jesus. So what this last set of scriptures that are the last week of Epiphany, I mean, this is one of the things that I think is now fun to be an Anglican. Like, no offense to my evangelical background, but we, we, we celebrated Christmas one day. You know, we've been thinking about God manifesting himself to the world now for a good long set of weeks here, thinking about that God is revealing himself to the world, and as he does so, transforming us. One of my very favorite 
quotes. I don't normally read long quotes to you, and this isn't real long, but I do want to read this to you because I, I think it's so spot on from a, a, a theologian called Tom Wright. Tom says, there's ultimately no justification for a private piety that doesn't work out in actual mission. Just as there's ultimately no justification for people who use their activism in the social, cultural, or political sphere, sphere, excuse me, as a screen to prevent them from facing the same challenges within their own lives. That is the challenge of God's kingdom, of Jesus's lordship, and of the spirits empowering. And then here's the, the big sentence to me. If the gospel isn't transforming you, how do you know it will transform anything else? And we've got a big sort of divide happening in our culture right now, where sort of the icons of social justice and the icons of social activism are often people who are otherwise tremendously immoral. But yet, you know, they're on the cover of all the magazines and they get all the media attention, but there's no genuine sense in them of pursuing the transformation in themselves that they pursue in the world. And so what Tom's saying is there's no justification for a mere private piety that doesn't overflow in the good of others, but there's also no justification for a kind of social activism that isn't likewise pursuing an activism in yourself and one's own broken heart and own brokenness within them. That ultimately what gives all of us the confidence that God could transform a barrio in Costa Mesa or that God could transform a nation after an earthquake like Haiti, the only reason we walk into those kinds of situations with any kind of genuine confidence, I don't mean just sort of religious belief, but genuine confidence is that we have experienced firsthand that God is transforming the brokenness in our own sort of inner earthquakes. And then that gives us something that's genuine belief as we go into those sorts of settings. The problem is, of course, you know, this kind of transformation is not easy, this sort of personal transformation. And all of you who have spent any time in the South are just going to love this story. But here's the story. This guy gets particularly drunk one night out in the woods, you know, around a fire pit and uh, gets hot. And so he wants to walk down towards the river. Well, as he walks down to the river, this church is down there having sort of a sunset baptism service, right? Can you picture this? So this drunk wanders down and he wanders into the river and he accidentally bumps into, you know, probably the Baptist pastor, you know, doing this baptism in a river. Well, he's really drunk and the pastor sees it and goes, mister, have you found Jesus? And the guy says, well, no, I haven't found Jesus. And, you know, smells the alcohol in his breath and stuff. So he takes him by the shoulders and he dunks him under the water and holds him for a minute and brings him up and says, Now, mister, have you found Jesus? And the old drunk guy says, no, I have not found Jesus. So now the minister is, you know, a little miffed. He takes him and he puts him down again and holds him just a bit longer, brings him up and says, now, have you found Jesus? The guy says, no, I haven't found Jesus. Well, now the minister is a little bit, you know, ticked. So he takes him and he holds him under the water a long time till the guy starts kicking and, you know, flailing his hands. And he brings him up and says, now you tell me, for the love of God, have you found Jesus? And the old drunk guy looks at him and says, no, are you sure this is where he fell in? (laughs) So you see, transformation does not come easily to all of us, but it is the story that we're invited into. Okay, everybody ready to come back now? (laughs) 
This, of course, what happens to Moses when he comes down from Sinai. When it says that his face is radiant, it means that he is radiating the presence of God. Now, this is a big deal. This is not, you know, just kind of something that would go, well, wow, well, that's kind of interesting. Because what's happening here is that God is placing his authority on Moses and letting the people know it. Because if you remember the story, what's happened just before this is the incident with the golden calf, where they had dissed Moses, dissed God, but now Moses comes back from being with God and he's like superhuman or something. There's something going on with him that isn't normal. And the message in that, the signal in that is, is that God is with Moses and he's giving him his authority to lead the people. But more than that, he's saying, God is with you through Moses. Moses' radiant face was a renewal of the relationship with God. It was an epiphany. It was the sign of God's manifest presence with his people, a sign of God's acceptance with his people. As we just sang, even when you build a golden calf, even when you dis Moses, the leader I've given you, God believes in you. That was the purpose of Moses' radiant face. It was to say, yes, you've been in exile. Yes, you're distant from me, but this is not gonna last because I believe in you. Now, of course, when the people see this, they're afraid. And it, it raises to me the question, what does one do with uncommon anointing? What does one do with uncommon blessing? What does one do with uncommon giftedness? Do you become a Christian rock star? I mean, you know, what do you do with that? Well, what this passage teaches us is that you incarnate yourself. It says to them, but Moses called to them. There was, I, I love, I, I made up this word, but I love it. There was a fundamental otherliness about him. It never dawned on him that this great blessing he'd been given to him was fundamentally for him. And so the text tells us that when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face so that they wouldn't be afraid meaning that he met the people on their terms. He didn't demand that they drop their fear. He said, oh, I can see that this makes you afraid. And so he did what it took to be their genuine friend on their terms. Now, this, of course, is what Paul's getting at in this reading uh, from Corinthians when he talks, of, this is a, just a, simply a different way of talking about what it means to radiate the love and the personhood of God. And he says, look, you're all the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. That is to say, in the same way that God radiated himself through Moses, in the same way that God made himself manifest or present through Christ in the Mount of Transfiguration, God is doing the same thing through you guys, that each one of you are a manifestation of God. And this happens through the gifts of the Spirit. That's the way God shows himself. In other words, the sort of equivalent for us in the age of the church of Moses' radiant faith is faith, face is somebody who has the gift of hospitality that radiates the love and person and presence of Christ or somebody who has the gift of teaching or somebody has the gift of seeing things from God's angle, what we call prophecy, or somebody who has the, the ability to kind of understand things from God's point of view, what we might call word of knowledge or word of wisdom. Those are the way that God makes himself manifest and present and radiating himself through us today. But Paul says, and, and this is the point of this text, you know, this famous text in 1 Corinthians 13 that you hear read at 
weddings and stuff, is what Paul's saying though, is that really the way that God makes himself known in the world today is through love. It's through the love of his people. And so when he says, you know, eagerly desire the greater gifts, and by the way, we're, we're preparing to do a little seminar on, on the person and work of the Spirit, including the gifts of the Spirit, just to make sure we're kind of all on the same page here. But what, what Paul's saying here is that there's something, though, that even goes beyond the gifts and empowers the gifts and makes the gifts be what they're supposed to be. And that's this most excellent way to radiate the life of God called love. And I've said before, but I just think it, it bears repeating maybe several times that love may be the most mixed up concept in our society today. Because love is not primarily about desire, but it's almost always the way we, we use the term. Like when some high school or college kid, or it doesn't matter how old they are, says, man, she or he's really hot. I really love him. What they mean is I desire him or her. There's not implicit in that statement that I will to do his or her good. And that's what the biblical idea of love is. It's the will to good of the object loved. I've told you before, I love deeply and passionately German chocolate cake, but I do not will its good. My desire is to consume it. And I just have to say that this, this explains many business relationships I don't love you, I want to use you. This explains broken marriages, broken friendships, mistrust between neighbors. It's not a genuine will to good. But if you read what love is, then you see how it is sort of a radiance of God, that it's practices. It's not sort of gushy, poetic ideas, what Paul has in mind here are actual practices. This is why he says, so it doesn't matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. This is why that's true when he says love is patient, meaning it never gives up. Love is kind, that is to say it cares more for others than itself. Love doesn't envy, that is to say it doesn't want what it doesn't have. Can you see how these are practices? And if these practices were put into place in relationships, patience, kindness, envy, it doesn't boast. It doesn't, you know, sort of strut around. It's not proud. I mean, it doesn't have a swelled head. It's not rude. It doesn't force itself on others. It's not self-seeking. Love is not me first. It's not easily angered, meaning true love doesn't easily fly off the handle. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't keep score of sins. Love doesn't delight in evil. That is to say, it doesn't revel when others grovel. Like when you find yourself feeling kind of, I'm glad that person got busted. That's what Paul means. It doesn't delight in evil that happens to others. Rather, it rejoices in the truth, which is to say it takes pleasure in in the spread of truth. It always protects, doesn't cast aside. It always trusts, hopes, and perseveres. Love never fails. And what Paul means to say there is that gifts do fail. Talents do fail. Abilities do fail, which is to simply say they have their limits. This is why Paul says that we know in part and we prophesy in part, or we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. But that being the case, he said, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. 
I love the way Peterson gets this in the message when he says, we don't see yet things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things that lead us towards that consummation. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. So when we see finally the the story on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus' appearance of his face changes and and it's sort of an echo of what happened to Moses in the Old Testament, when, you know, the, the two men leave and Peter's left there with Jesus, he says to him, Master, this is a great moment. Let's build three memorials. Now that is the kind of making something romantic, and I mean that in the positive sense of the term, Peter's instinct there, and you know, he sort of wakes, wakes from this slumber, and I forget how Peterson puts it in the message, but something like, Peter had no idea what he was talking about. You know, he sort of wakes up in this slumber and says, oh, we should build three memorials, which is, actually, it was sort of a pious Jewish thing to say, because Peter knew his Old Testament, and he knew that whenever God had made himself particularly manifest to people, they would build an altar, a memorial to remember that God had made himself present. So this wasn't like a totally loser thing to say, but it missed the point. Because Jesus then says to him, after Peter blurts this out, he shows him what is the true path to letting your life shine. And the true path are these practices that Paul's just talked about, where, you know, the story says that a voice comes from the cloud saying, this is my son, whom I've chosen, listen to him. Now, listen in the New Testament never means merely hear. This is what, you know, of course, James was concerned about when he said, don't just be what? Hearers of the word, but we be what? Doers of the word. When Jesus finishes what's arguably the greatest teaching of his in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, You remember the very last parable in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount is this parable about wise and foolish builders. Well, who's the foolish builders? They're the ones who only hear Jesus's words, but don't put them into practice. But Jesus said, if you hear these words of mine and you do them, then you're like a wise person who builds your life on the rock. And so hearing when, when the voice says, listen to him, it actually means something like follow his practices. Now, I wouldn't expect you to know this um, just because of the way we, you know, we do the readings here, but um, it's something I should know, and, and that is the context out of which this, com- this passage in the gospel reading comes. And if you had a Bible in front of you, you could look that the next story is the story of this poor boy who a demon is making horribly sick. So Luke tells us this story in which you have this amazing story of the transfiguration. And in the context of, you know, what God, how God has made himself present to his people in the past, invited them into this story in which they participate. And so we have this story in which this amazing event happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then Luke follows it with this story of this horribly sick young boy who's made sick, and not all sicknesses, of course, is demonic, but in this particular case, Luke says it was. And what this teaches us is that we live in a time between the times. 
We live in a time in which God is making himself present to humanity, but everything is not yet as it should be. But this is the point going back to that opening Tom Wright quote. The more we open ourselves to God, the more we truly make ourselves open as the people did to Moses, as Paul is suggesting that you eagerly desire the greater gifts of which love is most preeminent, as you make yourself open to the words and works of Jesus, as you open yourself to God, two things happen. One, you are led in on some amazing divine experiences. And I would bet that everybody in this room could talk about a moment when they especially knew that God was present to them. Maybe not in a radiant face like Moses, maybe not in the Mount of Transfiguration, but you could tell a story in which God was obviously, clearly, undeniably manifest to you. So we get open to that, but you also get open to the pain in the world. There is no way to be close to God and to be his people without also simultaneously coming down off the mountain to the pain and injustice and horrible things of the world. This is why no private piety alone is the transformation or radiance that God is after, no sort of private spirituality, private belief system. But neither is the kind of thing that says, well, I don't really care about God or religion or I don't really like organized religion, but I like doing sort of social justice. They're equal but opposite errors. Because what about the injustice that you continually inflict on others without the transformation of your own heart? So Mr. Hotshot politician, you know, Mr. Hotshot actor or whatever, you know, that, you know, you care about this stuff, but there's no transformation happening of your own. Well, go talk to those people's staffs. Go have a word with that hotshot politician staff and hear their stories of being routinely abused by him or her. And what the story is telling us is that neither personal spirituality that doesn't end up overflowing for the sake of others, nor a kind of, I care about others, but there's no transformation happening in me works. It's not what God's after. That in Moses, they experienced deliverance from bondage. In Jesus, we are to experience delivery from slavery to sin and death. And it happens as this, you know, Jesus comes down off that mountain after saying, this is all about preparing me for Jerusalem. And he goes to Jerusalem and dies. And this is why for us, you know, it sometimes does feel like death to be patient or kind. When everything in you wants to be impatient and mean, it literally feels like you're dying to something in you that seems fundamental. It, it just seems like everything in you cries out, no, I am really ticked and I want to harm. And it, honestly, it seems basic. It seems really fundamental, like a basic instinct. And this is why we all need transformation because otherwise we're left only acting out of those basic instincts. But one of the things that we're done here that this sort of presence of God, the, the light of Christ, the sort of radiance of God always with his people, one of the things it does is it exposes, but in a good way. Um, you know, think of a little French restaurant you like or something where the lighting's really low or, 
you know, an Italian restaurant or something, and the lighting's all really dim and dark, and, and it's really nice because when a little bit of spaghetti sauce splashes on you, you know, you just kind of go like that, and, you know, no one sees it, right? Well, ask anybody who works in the restaurant business, and they'll tell you that when the night's over and the working lights go up, that if any of us could see what a restaurant looks like with the working lights up after a night of everybody dining out, we'd probably never, none of us ever want to go out to eat again because it exposes what's really there in the booth and on the floor and around everything, and it's sort of a filthy mess. And this is what Jesus had in mind when he told Nicodemus something like this. As Nicodemus was wondering, you know, remember, coming to Jesus at night, wondering what's it really like for me to experience you radiating God to me in my own transformation? What's this mean? And Jesus said to him something like this. This is the crisis we're in. God light has streamed into the world through Moses, through Jesus, through the church. God light has streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. For everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in the truth and reality welcomes God light so that the work can be seen for the God work that it really is. See, here's the deal with love, the way Paul explained it, is that it doesn't matter what's happening in your life. In fact, I, I have a saying that I use for myself day in and day out, and that is keep it personal. Everything's personal. And whenever somebody says to you, you know, your supervisor calls you into the office and says, this isn't personal, but, right? You know you're about to hear the hardest news you've ever heard in your life because it's deeply personal. When your supervisor says to you, gee, I'm sorry, this isn't personal, but you're fired. Let me give you a clue. What you say back is, how in the H-E double toothpicks is that not personal? Like, is, is an, do I have an impersonal bank account? Do I have impersonal kids to feed? How is this not personal? No, everything is personal. And so I constantly remind myself day in and day out, moment by moment, everything is personal. Why? Because that keeps me in regards to you, my wife, my children, my friends, my family safe. Everything's personal. Because here's what you need to know. No matter what's happening around you, the only thing that anybody will ever remember is the kind of person you were. It doesn't matter. It can be joyous things. It can be a hard thing. It can be sadness. It can be great celebration. It can be tremendous hardship. It really doesn't matter what's happening. And this is a message for everybody who leads, a parent, a teacher. It doesn't matter what you do, that no matter what's happening around you, almost nobody is going to remember what you say. I know that I know that I know that all, none of you remember what I said a month ago in a sermon. But here's what's also true. No one will ever forget the kind of person you are. And this is why love trumps everything. This is why love, the desire of good for others, is the foundational way that God is making himself known in the world today. Because radiating a bit of light can be really powerful. Just radiating a little bit of God's love can be orienting. Just one quick story. When I was the pastor at the Vineyard Anaheim, we were meeting in this big industrial building in Anaheim. Um, 
I can't remember exactly where now, but it was this huge industrial room like this, only a hundred times bigger. And this, I was in charge this particular night. There are 3,000 people sitting there. And somebody hit a power pole outside. And all the lights went off in the building. And it was winter. And so it was dark out, you know, 6 o'clock at night. And for some reason, our emergency lights didn't come on. So you got a picture, you know, 3,000 people sitting there in the dark. I'm in charge. And I'm sitting in a place that's near the hallway that leads back to the children's ministry where there would have been 500 or 1,000 kids and I could hear them squealing out of fear. And I'm in charge. And so I sort of grope over to the doorway to, to open this door that led to a perpendicular hallway. And a young mom from the other end of the auditorium, hundreds of feet away, had gone through the door on the other end of the hallway. And she had in her purse one of those tiny little pocket flashlights. Now that flashlight didn't illuminate the sanctuary, not even close. It didn't even illuminate the hallway, but it oriented me. I could see the hallway went this way. And we went back there and we found the emergency flashlights and people started pulling cars, you know, their cars up to the glass windows and shining light in there so we could get the kids out safely and stuff. Well, I go back into the sanctuary, you know, the pastor's gone for five minutes. I go back into the sanctuary and there's 3,000 people with their big lighters, you know, it looked like this. <laughs> It looked like, hey, Jude, you know, hey, Jude. But a little light, our little light, when we keep it personal, when we step into both the personal transformation that exists for the sake of others, we do what our little plaque in the back says. We become bearers of God's light in the world. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.